Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. I'm sure many of you have a character in your family like I do. Uh, my father-in-law is quite the character. I'll never forget when we uh, first started trying to celebrate birthdays together, and he looked at me and said, I don't do that. I don't celebrate birthdays. What? <laughs> what does that mean? He says, you should live every day like it's your birthday. Oh, okay, got it. Um, we're still going to celebrate birthdays, but uh, you're invited, I guess. And, uh, and I looked at him one day, and I said, surely, surely we're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday. <laughs> surely. Uh, my wife, growing up, didn't really celebrate Christmas with her family. Never had the tree with the gifts under it, nativity scene, none of it. And so you can imagine how excited she was when we have a Christmas tree in our home now, and, you know, it's, the lights are beaming everywhere, and so is her face. And... Uh, Yes, it is true what my father-in-law says. In theory, you should celebrate every day like it's your birthday. Life is a gift. Uh, equally so, we as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, should live every day like it's Jesus' birthday. Like, oh my goodness, Jesus came. And yet, what is also true is that we as a people, in this particular season of Advent, it is important, it is significant for us to strive together to not just comprehend, clap our hands, sing a few songs that Jesus came, that it's his birthday, but to, to comprehend and understand the, the matter of his coming and the outcome of all that happened and has taken shape because he came. And that's what the season is about. You see, for the past few weeks, we have come to understand that, that Jesus is the king on the throne. He is the king of all kings, and he's been on a kingdom-building mission from the jump, from the start. We learned a couple of weeks ago that because he came, we have a hope that endures through anything and everything. And finally, last week, though this king is the king of all kings, the truth of the matter is you and I, we constantly put some other king on the throne of our hearts. We consistently abide to another voice, for our view of the world and also the decisions that we make, some other perspective is more important than our kings. And so then, today, we get to come to this moment in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, to many people, is the climax of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. That if we were to try to discern together what sort of king is this coming king in Jesus going to be, what sort of reign and rule will it feel like for those who call him king? Many turn to Isaiah 9. You see, Isaiah 9 is the crest of the wave of the Old Testament in regards to messianic prophecies. I bumped into Jeremiah last week and uh, just expressed to him, like, man, like, this, is, this is not easy. It's not easy to jump from prophetic word to prophetic word to prophetic word week after week after week. You see, the difficulty in it is kind of like getting thrown into a three-hour-long conversation. But you only get 30 seconds of a sound bite. Right? Like, Isaiah is a long book. And we're going to study a few verses. We don't have all the time in the world to get you all the context before and all the context thereafter. And so my aim today is not to make you experts in prophetic literature because I would fail you. My aim today, though, is singular. Singular in nature. And that is to convince you of one compelling truth. Now, I don't know if you uh, have ever heard this phrase. I'm betting you have, 
Or maybe you've said it recently. You've looked at a kid who's beaming with potential. And you've said the phrase or thought the thought, that child's got a bright future. That child's got a bright future. I'm convinced it's for one of two reasons that you would think a thought like that or say a phrase like that. The first reason is because of the circumstances that we're aware of, right? That child has got parents that are incredibly supportive. That child is going to be in a home that is fostered with lots of love and encouragement, but also some challenge, some discipline, right? The circumstances that we're aware of make, we're aware of make us think the thought, that child's got a bright future. Not only that, the other component of why you would think a thought like that is if the child has certain characteristics on display, right? Maybe they're really fast and jump real high, like, man, athletically, bright future, bright, bright future, or it's their intellect. They know lots of big words and they're only four. Like, I don't know how this is working, but it's working. Or they're incredibly socially mature. They, they, they can speak really well in a crowd, listen thoughtfully, right? All of a sudden it's I don't know, something is happening, that characteristic on display, bright, bright future for that child. Seven Mile Road, my singular aim this morning is to convince you of one truth. And that is that no matter your age, your stage, your season of life, you've got a bright future. You've got a bright future, and the reason is this. The sun has pierced through the dark. The Son of God has pierced through the darkness, and for that reason, you and I have hope for a bright future. Let me try to convince you of that truth. Look with me in the text in Isaiah 9. Before we dive into some of these key verses, I do just want to highlight the fact that verse 1, verse 1 is a beautifully articulated transition verse. And instead of spending all the time unpacking it, the locations, the language, in essence, we just have to recognize as a people who are reading God's word that the, word, the verse starts with the word but. So we've got to think about what comes before it. And it talks about words like gloom and anguish and contempt. Essentially, Isaiah has spent eight chapters talking about the people of God and warning them of their wickedness and their faithlessness. Warning them of all the ways that, that they're doing it all wrong. And that he understands times are hard. It's difficult out here. He understands the fact that there is a foreign army in Assyria just right over yonder over those hills. A foreign army is waiting to take over. Not only that, we have a foolish king on the throne that doesn't know left from right. Foreign army, foolish king, difficult times. And what Isaiah is essentially saying in the verses just before chapter 9, verse 1, is a, is a warning that is already a reality that your difficult circumstances will become darkness to you. They will if you respond incorrectly to them. That if you choose to trust not in the word of God, but in the ways of this world, your difficulty will turn to darkness. That's Isaiah's message leading up to chapter 9. And so then we come to his assessment of that darkness. And he bursts forth into, in verse 2 and the rest of this passage into a, poet, into a poem, into a song of sorts. And so I want us to study these closely together. Isaiah's assessment of the people of God's circumstances. And just as a forewarning, the signs are not of a bright future. 
Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness. Just want to highlight that. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. That phrase, walk, uh, walked in darkness, could be translated walking into darkness. That this is the active, the proactive choice of the people walking into darkness. Because they are making the choice to not trust in the word of God, but in the ways of this world in the midst of adversity. And so Isaiah is highlighting that as his, in his assessment and that they are dwelling or literally pitching their tents, settling down in death's shadow. That's what deep darkness is translated into literally. The shadow of death is looming over you because of the ways you are responding to difficulty. That's Isaiah's assessment. You're drowning in the dark. Look with me in verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. This is slavery language, right? He's trying to help the people of God remember. Remember those times that you were in Egyptian enslavement and all you felt was that burden, that heaviness on your shoulders and the literal rod on your back? You're still enslaved today. Even now, you are enslaved. You're enslaved to a different master. You're overwhelmed by the ever-present gloom, and you chose it. And you chose it. Isaiah goes on in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood. He goes on to describe this wartime imagery, right? And it emphasizes the fact that here is a people that are weary, They've been wringing their hands every day, wondering, like, is that foreign army finally going to arrive at our front door? And is the king that's on the throne that is, in all of his folly, going to do anything about it? And so they're wringing their hands, they're anxious head to toe, and they're wondering who to turn to and what to do, and they don't turn to God's word, they turn to their own ways. And Isaiah looks at that and says, darkness, you're spiraling into more and more confusion into this pit of despair, and it's of your own choosing. Because what you and I can attest to is that everybody goes through difficulty. Everybody does, and everybody will. But not everybody has to experience this sort of darkness, according to Isaiah. You will make a choice as to how you respond in the face of adversity, and it will either lead you toward God and the light therein or toward darkness according to Isaiah. Now, if you're anything like me, you read a passage like this, words like that, or anywhere else in the Old Testament for that matter, and you begin to feel this rhyming of sorts. Like, how do the people of God keep doing this? Like, why? Like, God did a great thing, a miracle. He showed up, gives cause for hope, and then they're back to walking away and turning away from the Lord. And then you, you, you read moments like that in the Old Testament, page after page, and you think, Really? Again? You're going to turn again. You're going to forsake your God who rescued you again. You're going to trust in the ways of this world again and not in the word of your God again? Okay. If we're not careful, we will look at the people of God in the Old Testament and not realize that that it's us. (laughs) What Isaiah attests to in chapter 8 is these people, the people of God, want him on demand. On demand. Now, if you're like me, you love things on demand. Uh, 
I love uh, missing a game because of some appointment or some uh, important matter, right? And then you get to go home and you get to press play. Like it's happening right there in the moment. And you get to fast forward through the commercials. And because I love pain and torment, I love to go watch Texas football games. I love to suffer through all of the losses. And so I, I can even fast forward through the rough parts, right? Like, oh, there's another interception, fast forward. And so, uh, so I get through it. And all the parts that I want to enjoy, I enjoy. All the parts I want to skip, I get to skip, right? And when I need to go get a beverage or some snacks, I get to press pause. You know, it's, it's, all, the, it's all the benefits of on-demand. Now, the people of God, and if we're honest with ourselves, you and I, we love, we love a God on demand. That's what we want. Because when, when we get that spiral of death, of like, why isn't this loading? and we're stuck there waiting for what should be on demand, we grow frustrated. We're tired of waiting. Why do we have to wait? I've waited for a long time. I've waited for that significant other I've prayed for for a long time. I've prayed for a growing family for a long time. I've prayed for a different circumstance in my work or in my family for a long time, God. Why the spiral of death again and again and again? Or we want to be people who fast forward through the hard parts. We want to be people who press pause because there's something more pressing than listening and waiting on God. We treat God honestly, if we're genuine today, authentic with ourselves. We want a God on demand too. And that's what the people of God consistently require of God. And God doesn't play that game. He's not into that charade. And you and I, like any disgruntled customer with poor on-demand services would file in a complaint. God, this isn't working. We're done wringing our hands waiting on you. And we will choose something else. The ways of this world because we're tired of waiting on the word of our God. These are bleak circumstances, right? Isaiah is assessing the lay of the land and he's And he's attesting to the people of God, your difficulty has turned into darkness and it's by your own choosing. It's by your own choosing. And if we were to assess with Isaiah this bleak situation, we would be hard-pressed to think, there's a bright future ahead for these people. It's unlikely, and yet Isaiah can't help himself. If you read the entirety of the book of Isaiah, there's, there's little moments, sprinkles of, but hope breaks through. I love that about Isaiah because I need a voice like Isaiah's in my life. Hope breaking through the darkness. Let me show you how it plays out. Look with me in the exact same verses, verses two through five, how hope breaks through the system. In verse two, though these people are walking in the darkness, they have seen a great light. Though they pitched their own tents, they dwelt in a land of deep darkness of the shadow of death. On them has light shined. You see, light has burst forth. And it's because even though the people are passive, they're not doing anything right. They're literally walking into more and more darkness. Something has happened to them. And the people are no longer blind in the dark. So all of a sudden you feel this building up of what Isaiah is trying to allow them to feel hope is coming. In verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Did you hear it? Joy, joy, joy. Three times over, and then the fourth word is glad. 
That's a slightly different word that literally means to spin around in circles. We're getting to a point now where as if the harvest is plentiful, as if we've just been victorious over that foreign army, we're dividing the spoil, we're going to literally dance in delight now. That's the sort of crescendoing that is happening in Isaiah of this hope that is breaking through. And in verses 4 through 5, look with me. Yes, there's yoke of burden. Yes, there is a staff for the shoulder, a rod of the oppressor, and you have broken it as on the day of Midian. A reference back to the book of Judges that a miraculous event has occurred for every boot and every garment that's rolled in blood. So you think about the shackles of slavery and you think about the wartime uh, garments are being all thrown into this large fire. And it's fueling now the path forward. It's illumined by this growing fire. And so you feel this crescendoing, right? This, this climactic moment. And if, you're, and if you're these people, foreign army just outside the gates, foolish king on the throne, and you've been doing this for days on end, you feel this moment building up. And then Isaiah utters the words, for to us a child is born. Now, I want us to try to enter into the shoes or the sandals of these people, right? What it would have felt like is um, the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa. So uh, I studied art history a little bit in college, and before you get duped into thinking I'm some cultured person, I needed a fine arts credit, fit the schedule, and here I am, art history class. Um, in art history, though, you learn about individuals like Leonardo da Vinci and the impact of some of his masterpieces, like the Mona Lisa. And it's blown up. The Mona Lisa is blown up on this huge projector, kind of like this, and uh, all of a sudden we're studying its intricacies and just how much a piece like that transformed how people thought about art. What, what could be possible? If you and I were to try to venture to go see the Mona Lisa in person, you would get on a nine-and-a-half-hour flight, fly on over to Paris. You would probably wait two to three hours in line to get into the Louvre. And then after making your way through, you would get to this point of this image up on the screen. There it is, in all of its glory, right? There would be a couple of security guards next door. You can't get that close, and it's like a, a whopping 30 by 21 inches, right? It's like a mini poster in your room. And so, as you can imagine, right, it's, it, are, are we, you had built up to this moment this incredibly transformative piece, this crescendoing of, of what's to come, of this hope that is breaking through the system, that is going to finally end all of my hand-wringing and my nervousness and my anxiety and my dread to get me out of this pit of darkness that I put myself in. And you're telling me it's a child that's going to be born? A son that's going to be given? You see, for us, it's, it's a very different sort of sentiment, Right? We get to, in a very privileged position in history, get to receive those words with, ah, yes, a child is born and a son is given. But for people 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene, they would have kept on wringing their hands hearing those words. It would have felt like the Mona Lisa. <laughs> this, this feels at odds with what you built up to. But like the Mona Lisa, these words of Isaiah, the brilliance of it is in the details. 
The brilliance of it is found in the details, and like the Mona Lisa, it does not disappoint. Let me prove it to you. Look with me in verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If we were to try to get a snapshot of the entirety of the Old Testament, it would be a collective cry for this. For this. The Israelites have, have always longed for a king like this someone to lead them. They wanted a king just like all the other nations, but they wanted one that would lead with justice and with righteousness. That was their hope all along. Someone that could actually make good judgment calls that wasn't like our foolish king on the throne right now, not knowing his left from right, but someone that actually knew what was best, that could make good plans, and that could also restore to us the sort of relationships that are flourishing and thriving where we feel at peace with everyone all around us. That's what the people of God have been crying for, longing for, and they haven't gotten it. And so there's this key phrase as we, as we unpack this child that's to be born, this son that is given. The brilliance is in the details, right? So I, I want us to, to, to couch ourselves in the words of Isaiah when he says the common biblical phrase of with justice and with righteousness. Here's a simple chart. Don't be too impressed on the screen. Uh, Justice on the left. Biblical justice is a really robust word. And my my best summation of it um, is that it is the ability to make right judgments. Right? If it's retribution sort of judgment that needs to be made because someone's done a thing and they need to be punished, great. Got it. More oftentimes than not, biblical justice is restorative. It brings somebody up to a place of hope and a place that is better than once they once were, even if they have wronged the system or somebody. But to this left side, though, this reality of justice, for someone to rule and to reign with justice is to all of a sudden be qualified to actually rule and to be a king. So this left side is the qualifications of this child, of this son, to actually be the king on the throne forever because he is wonderful counselor. What that means is that he is a miraculous sort of planner. His wisdom is unabounding. So you've got an issue, he's got a plan. There's something awry and it's causing you to do this and be anxiety ridden, he's got something for you. He can listen to you all the way down to the bottom and give you the right steps forward. He's a wonderful counselor. That sounds like a great qualification for him to be king. Not only that, he's mighty God. These are two words that are synonymous with power, am I right? Mighty and God. Not only does he have the ability to make good, wise plans, he has the power and the authority to actually do everything he says he'll do qualifications of a good king on the left side. The right side are the qualities of what his kingship will feel like, of what it'll feel like, righteousness. The biblical summation of righteousness is not a person who does good things. That's not what righteousness is. 
Righteousness is all about cultivating right relationships. That's what righteousness means. That everything you say, everything you do, makes everything relationally better. And it's right. It just feels good. And so there's this unique word, everlasting father. It's two words that are smushed together to make one word. It's used one time in the scriptures. Here. Something eternal with a relationship that is paternal. Smushed together. It'll never change. It'll never go away. God will be like a father to you. That vertical relationship between you and the living God, paternal, familial. And then, he, and then prince of peace. All the strife, all the issues you have with the person sitting next to you or the family member that's coming home for the holidays, all that strife, all that angst, here is a prince that will be seated on the throne and he will provide you a path of peace horizontally with everybody around you. The left side qualifications of why Jesus, the child to be born and the son to be given, should be king for all time. And the right side is the qualities of his reign that we get to experience. You see, the beauty is in the details. The brilliance is in the details. Furthermore, oh man, there's so much to unpack here and we're almost out of time. Um, it begs the question, well, how or why? Why is all this happening to a people who have chosen their own darkness, who have fell into the own pit of their own despair because in the midst of difficulty and adversity, they chose the ways of this world instead of the word of their God? Why? And it tells us right here at the end of verse 7. Isaiah 9, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, that is a comforting verse. That word zeal is, it's, it's, you know, it's another word that you and I don't use very often. Like, you're really zealous? Like, you know, like, I don't know when you would use that sort of word. So oftentimes in the scriptures, it's translated as jealousy. God's jealousy for you. And it's because that word at its core it speaks to such high degrees of commitment to you that it, it spills forth into passion, like it's uncontainable passion because of commitment, or it's such great desire because of devotion. That's why it's often translated in jealousy. So it's, it's God's devotion that spills forth in desire, his commitment that bursts forth into passion, his jealousy for you, his longing to be yours and for you to be his, that will do this. That will do it. Not because of you, but in spite of you in the ways that you and I have chosen darkness in the midst of difficulty. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, it's, it's God's zeal. It's his commitment to you that spurred Jesus to, to take on flesh. And just to unpack that a little bit, right? It's easy for us to be in this Christmas season and just, to, you know, yay, Jesus came. Let's put some lights on the tree. Let's share some presents. Let's sing some songs. But to unpack this a little more, the same prophet that gave this word of hope breaking through the dark system is the same prophet in chapter 53 where he talks about the sort of circumstances that Jesus was to enter into the world to. Isaiah 53 highlights the fact that Jesus came with no form 
or majesty, that we would want to look at him. No beauty that we would desire him, that he was to be despised and rejected, that he literally came into a home of a refugee couple running for their lives, deemed from the moment he took his first breath that your daddy's not really your daddy, born in a stable, in a barn of all places to a poor carpenter, that's the circumstances that Jesus chose to be born into as a child. Why? Because his zeal spoke to the fact that you and I are living and breathing in bleak, dark circumstances, so he's going to be empathetic. He's going he's to make sure we know that he is with us, that he can understand the depth of our, of our bleak situations, and he's going to enter into the world in those sort of circumstances. A child with no bright future. And he would do all of that. He would take on that sort of circumstance. He would live the life that you and I couldn't have hoped to have lived. And he would die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. And he would rise victoriously from the grave, all to make sure that you and I, with a paternal, loving father, could look at us and say, that child, that child, and that child, that child's got a bright future. That child's got a bright future because my son came and pierced through the darkness. That is the, that is the Christmas story. That is the Christmas hope. Do you feel the crescendo rising as, as we get to relish in the fact that Jesus came and he lived and he died into dark and grim circumstances, beaming with this sort of brilliant character so that you and I could be looked at by a loving father and, and our God to say, that child, my child, has a bright future. And it's because my son was pierced by the dark. It's because he had to go through what he went through so that that death's sting could be unraveled and that sin's shadow could be upended. He pierced through the darkness that you and I could have hope of a bright future. And so Seven Mile Road, if you're here today, I hope that every single time you hear the words, Merry Christmas, there will be a refrain that instinctively comes and pops into your mind and, and melts down into your heart that you have hope of a bright future because Jesus came and he pierced to the dark. Amen? Let me pray for us.